Morning. Good to be here. Morning to everybody on Facebook as well. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name's Kevin Twitt. I'm the RUF campus minister at Belmont here in Nashville and been doing what in this uh, Presbyterian church we call pulpit supply um, here. Glad to be with you guys uh, again in person. Um, we are going to have uh, our message today is from Galatians chapter 4, and I titled this message, Remembering Easter at Christmas. Um, I was, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have some Christmas music that I love and some Christmas music that I don't love. Um, I certainly don't like that line in, um, oh, what is the, Away in a Manger, about the little baby not crying, the baby Jesus not crying. Don't ever believe that. Um, he was a real man, a real baby. There's nothing in the Bible that says that he was some, like, super baby that never cried. If he was a baby that never cried, we'd think something was really wrong, right? Um, so, you know, there, there's some of those. And, and there's some that I'm like, okay, I like this. How could you not like Ben Crosby? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. But listen, Christmas should never be little, right? And one of the things about Advent is we're preparing by focusing on the longing, the longing, so that we wouldn't just trivialize Christmas and think of it as this little merry little thing where we get together and we just celebrate, you know, with family. You know, there's all these things, all these traditions that can take over sometimes the real point of all of this. Maybe you'll hear people talk around this time of the year about, you know, remember the season, right? Um, tis the season to remember the reason for the season, all that kind of stuff. That's true. That's true. Um, but I think sometimes even those discussions don't go far enough. And so last week, what I wanted to talk about was there's a context. Christmas comes not just out of the blue, but connects even to what happened in the Garden of Eden. And I talked about the poetic justice of the way Mary can even serve as sort of this poetic justice, the child born through Mary answering sin that came through that first couple in the garden. And how even as God prophesies in giving this curse to the serpent and says that there will be one day one born who will crush the head of the serpent, that through childbirth, the strange passage in 1 Timothy says, we will be saved through the childbirth, this childbirth that we celebrate uh, on December 25th. So last week, we were trying to understand the context that's come from a long way back, right? Today, we're going to look at what Christmas is all about. And, and I really think the way to see how big of a deal Christmas is, is by looking at what God says about why Jesus came. We want to today look at what God says about why Jesus came. Because if you really want to know what Christmas is about, you should ask the one who created it. See, the Bible is not just a record of what God did and then what humans thought about it. It is a record of what God did because he acts in real space-time history, and it's God telling us what it means, which is incredibly gracious, that we don't have to just wonder, oh, you know, like the stars in the sky, like, wow, that's awesome. I wonder what that means. No, the Bible tells us 
God is glorious beyond what you can imagine. Right? And similarly, if you want to understand Christmas, God tells us why he sent Jesus. If you want to understand what Christmas is about, you should ask the one who created it. So that's what we're going to do today. You know, every year with this college ministry that I work with, RUF, we always have a Christmas party. It's always kind of the big end of the season thing. Of course, this year, all the college students went home like before Thanksgiving. So no Christmas party. I did not get to share my Norwegian rice pudding, which is like the highlight of my year because not very many people like it, but I can justify making a double batch in the crock pot and have it for like a week to feast on. I did still make Norwegian rice pudding because my wife had been exposed and was in quarantine for 12 days, so there was nothing she could do about it. Well, this year we're going to have for RUF a post-Christmas Regifting party. See, one of the, the highlights of the year is people, you know, bring these white elephant wrapped gifts, right? And there have been some really creative gifts uh, over the years, some amazing things that have been given. And um, we can't do that this year. So I thought, how about we do a post Christmas regifting party when everybody comes back? But of course, now they're not coming back till the middle of January, but I still think we're going to do it because every one of us has gotten one of those kinds of gifts, right? that you would love to re-gift and you'd love to share it with all your friends about those gifts. There are some things, you know, that just have to be explained. Some gifts that can only be explained by the giver. And this, of course, makes me think of my beloved Grandma Doris, my mom's mom. Now, she never wrapped up the cat like the lady in the Christmas vacation movie, right? But Grandma Doris, when you saw presents from Grandma Doris under our tree, and see, we grew up in Baltimore, but my, all my relatives really lived out in the Midwest. So they always sent us these gifts in boxes. They were never there to explain the gifts when you opened them. Sometimes you would open a gift from Grandma Doris, and you weren't sure if she had mixed up which tag went on which gift. Because you would look at it, and you'd be like, what? I, I don't get it. And then when she moved to Florida and lived next to a Big Lots outlet, did you know there were Big Lots outlets? You had no idea what you were going to get, right? Literally, sometimes you'd be like, was this for me? What, what is this? But there was one gift she gave that I'll never forget. And this was, uh, I guess, around the time that I got married. I opened up this gift, and it's a little wooden box with a top that you can kind of slide back, like a roll-top thing. And I open it up, and I look, what is in this but it's all of our family recipes that she has laboriously copied out by hand for each of her grandchildren. And I still have that, right? Listen, gifts should always help us think about the giver. And they're even better when the giver can give you an understanding of the context. So, we will never understand the real point of Christmas unless we ask the one who sent the child why. Why? So let's hear what God has to say. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes this, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, see these so that phrases always give you a clue as to the reason, right? Whenever you see a so that, um, it tells you why. Sent this son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So this is a passage, you know, about the gift, why God gave the gift, but it's also an exhortation, isn't it? Like the gift actually should drive us to live a particular way and not another way. So as we explore this, let's first come to the Lord again briefly in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the gift. Help us to never take it for granted. But Lord, also help us to cherish what you say here about why. That we would fully, fully appreciate and appropriate this gift you've given. We ask you to help us. Send your spirit to help us. Even now, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we live in a world, I think, often with disconnected bits of information. As people have said, there's more information, but there's less wisdom. And so often, there's information without context. Just think about how often you've gotten upset by a headline or a tweet or a Facebook post before you've clicked on it and read the full context right? Little bits of information without context lead to a lot of disconnection. The great disconnect that I want to talk about today, though, is the disconnect that happens when we fail to remember why God sent his son into the world. Because Christmas is not an isolated event. Last week I talked about how Christmas doesn't come out of the blue, but today I want you to understand it's not the ultimate, it's not the end, it's not the goal. It's a huge story, Christmas, with a glorious context that can only be fully understood by knowing why God has given us this gift of his son. And so what does our text say? What does God graciously tell us today about the why? Well, the first thing is God sent his son born of a woman. As Colin mentioned earlier, this is the incarnation. And sometimes in the modern church, we talk a lot more about the death and resurrection of Jesus than we do the incarnation. And it's important that we understand how amazing the incarnation is. This is a time of year when we're reminded about that, right? So when Christians talk about incarnation, they're describing how God took on human flesh and became a human like us. That's like crazy to think about. It's one of those things you're like, yeah, I've heard this a lot. I know Christians talk about this. We sing about it. I'm not sure I really understand it. You know, even the Nicene Creed is helpful, but it leaves you with a lot of questions. Like how? 
did that happen? And there's only so far you could go because God has only told us so much. But one thing we do know, God took on human flesh. I, listen, the theologians do their best. Some of these things I think the poets and the hymn writers help us. Because as important as it is to know good theology, it's important also that we remember that we're just, we're just grasping. You know, John Calvin is famous for saying that even the Bible is God's baby talk. It's God condescending to speak to us in a way that we can understand, but we never fully grasp certainly this idea of the incarnation. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, and many, many other hymns. He actually wrote 6,500 hymns. I once calculated the day he was converted to the day he died, that's an average of one hymn per day for his life, okay? And that doesn't even count the unfinished hymns and the unpublished hymns. Then you're up to about 9,000. And if you want to, you know, just relish in that, uh, Duke University has put every single one of them on their website, every single one of them. So you can just read Wesley hymns uh, to your heart's content. Well, I want to point out a couple of them that I think are helpful in understanding, not just understanding, because I don't think you really understand until you glory in this idea of incarnation and what it means. Here, here's, here's a, I want to quote two of Wesley's hymns as we try and think about incarnation and what a big deal it is. Him, meaning Jesus, by all the angels adored, their maker and their king. Lo, tidings of their humbled Lord they now to mortals bring. Emptied of his majesty, of his dazzling glories shorn. And listen to this. Our being's source begins to be, and God himself is born. Being source begins to be. Do you understand what a paradox that is? But do you understand when you get to things like the incarnation, paradox is like just sort of strikes you in the, in the face. Like how in the world can the infinite almighty God be humbled and be born? How can being source begin to be? He says it in another one of his hymns this way. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. With the incarnation, being source begins to be, our God contracted to a span. A baby that fits in a manger. Completely dependent on other people. The one who we are to be dependent on in all things made himself dependent on human beings for all things, for life. It's mind-blowing, you know? And I don't think in the Western church we talk enough about the incarnation. Actually, you know, you may know people that are in like the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox or Antiochian Orthodox Church. There are various versions of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They actually focus way more on the incarnation. Now, I'm firmly planted in the Western church because of what I'm going to talk about today, which is the incarnation isn't an end in itself. It's a means to an end. But that doesn't mean it's not incredible. 
and shouldn't be something that we are just in awe when we think about. In the Eastern Church, really the, what drives devotion and wonder is the glory of the incarnation. That's why if you ever see like the paintings, the icons, you know, the idea of like glowing, kind of, you know, God glowing in the midst, like the idea that God has come down is what drives worship and devotion in the Eastern Church. In the Western Church, it's the cross. And I think there's a good reason for that, because as the same Apostle Paul that wrote our text today says to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. If you want Paul to explain to you what the heart of what his message is about, it's about Christ crucified. It's not just about the incarnation. Nonetheless, don't overlook the incarnation. Don't just consider it this sort of hum-ho thing. Because in the incarnation, God is revealing something about who he is and what he's like. You know, one of my, my favorite um, passages in the Old Testament is when David wants to build a temple for God. And so he tells uh, the prophet, Nathan, I, I think I'm going to build God a temple. And Nathan's like, great, good idea. And then God actually speaks to Nathan that night in a dream, says, I don't, wanna, I don't want David to build me a house. Like, I'm content, this is basically what the Hebrew says, I'm content to be a vagabond God with nowhere to live until his house is established. And in that, you understand what God is saying is, I'm putting my people first before my own comfort, before even what I deserve, which is to be housed in a beautiful temple. I'm not, I don't want it. I've not asked for it. My focus is on establishing my people. And don't you see that? Similarly, revealed again through this incarnation. I'm going to take on human flesh. I'm going to be touched by human misery. I'm going to see close up all the brokenness that's come to the world. So much so that Jesus was known as what? A man of sorrows. The incarnation is a big deal. Not just because it's this miracle that we can't explain. But because God would actually do it. That he actually would come. That he actually would submit himself to the shame. Do you understand? Jesus began suffering at the moment of his birth. He did. B.B. Warfield, wonderful professor at Princeton Seminary back in the, in the old days, wrote this powerful, powerful uh, article called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord where he talks about how Jesus began suffering even with the incarnation. At eight days old, his flesh is cut as he's circumcised. He had no need to be circumcised. He did not need to go through a cleansing ritual. The incarnation is a big deal because even there, God is showing how I'm going to put my people first, even above my own comfort. It's what we saw there in that call to worship. It's one of the reasons I love that passage so much. In all his people's affliction, what does it say? He too was afflicted. God is never distant from the suffering and the anguish of his people. And oh, don't we need to know that now? Don't we need to know that now? Don't we need to know that today? The incarnation says... That God became like one of us. But awe at the incarnation turns to weeping for joy when we realize the why of the incarnation. And to do that, we need to remember Easter at Christmas. That's what we need on t-shirts. That's what we need on a bumper sticker on our car. Easter. Remember Easter at Christmas. It's one of the great tragedies is that we separate these two things in sort of public kind of celebration. 
and consciousness. We never think about Easter at Christmas. Easter is when you think about the death. Christmas is when you think about the birth. But I'm telling you, what Paul was saying in Galatians 4 is you need to remember why this son was born of a woman. It was in fullness of time. I talked about that last week. God had a whole context he was bringing up to this incredibly important point when Jesus is born. But he's born for a particular purpose, to redeem us, and we need to be redeemed. But more than that, the ultimate so that in Galatians 4, I hope you see, is that we would become sons of God. J.I. Packer, wonderful theologian, probably one of the greatest English-speaking theologians of the 20th century, said this one time. You can take a great kind of measure of how much somebody really understands Christianity by how much they make of the fact that they are God's adopted son. If when you think about yourself as a Christian, or if when you're thinking about, well, I'm not a Christian, but this is what I think Christians are about, and this is what I think Christianity is about, if adoption as sons is not what you think about, you really don't think rightly about Christianity. If you think mostly about how I've been redeemed from guilt, that's good. But Paul says even that is a means to an end. He redeemed us so that we might receive the full rights of sons. And I tell you, I, you know, I work with a lot of students that have grown up in Christian families, good Christian churches, almost never when I've asked them, what does it mean to be a Christian? I can't think of any time a student says, what well, means to be adopted as God's child. They might say it means to be somebody who asked Jesus into their heart and their sins have been forgiven and they'll go to heaven when they die. I'm like, oh, it's so much more than that. Like Paul says, clearly, the goal was not just to save you from hell. The gospel is way bigger than that, guys. Christmas is way bigger than that. We have been brought into the very family of God. God is not just looking for worker bees to recruit to his team. Though when you talk to a lot of Christians, particularly those who have been in Christian churches a long time, you get the sense that that's why they think they were saved. Saved to serve. Yeah, that's some truth to that. But if you forget that you've also been saved to bask in the glory and the fact that you're adopted, and the fact that Jesus, that God sent the Son to save us, so that we might become sons. And then what does it say? He sent the spirit so that we would know we're sons and feel that we're sons. Now you might say, why not sons and daughters? Well, for that, you need to understand just this little bit of context. Under Roman law, and that's the context in which Paul is writing this letter, daughters did not really have legal rights. Sons even natural-born sons did not have the same kind of rights that adopted children had. You know, we adopted our daughter, May, uh, from China back in 2005. And one of the things we had to do was take a vow before a judge that we would never disinherit her. Nobody made me do that for my natural-born sons. I remind them of that sometimes. <laughs> it's good to remind your kids that. But I had to take that vow with my adopted child. And it was that way under Roman law. If you adopted someone to be your son, you couldn't disinherit them the way you could even your natural-born children. And this was not a privilege that extended to daughters. So when Paul talks here about adopted as sons, he's not saying that women don't matter. 
What he's saying is you have privileges that even natural born children don't have, right? And I always tell, you know, tell people, listen, women, ladies, you need to understand what it means to be a son of God, but guys, brothers, you need to understand what it means to be the bride of Christ, right? So don't ever limit your understanding of Christianity to how one gender might understand it. It's part of why we need the whole body of Christ to understand all the fullness of what God has given us in the gospel, right? Amen. So what Paul says here is that being redeemed and saved for our sins was not God's ultimate aim. That's, it's clear here. Jesus came to make us sons of the living God. Maybe I can explain it this way. Um, celebrating the mere arrival of a baby born on Christmas without remembering why he came is like being excited that some packages have arrived at our house from my parents in Florida. How crazy would it be if we just celebrated the arrival of the boxes and didn't even put them under the tree? Like we even left them out on the, on the porch, especially these days. You know, you want to get those packages in your house as soon as possible, right? But how crazy if, if, if we didn't even open the boxes. We just celebrated, yay, the boxes are here, right? You still haven't embraced, you see, the intention of the giver if you just celebrate the arrival of the gift. Because the, the giver... The giver wants you to open the gift. Presents are meant to be opened and enjoyed. Right? How crazy would it be if you just put these presents under the tree? When mail comes from the grandparents, they expect it to be opened. Presents are meant to be opened and enjoyed. Don't let the gift... Kids, adults, don't let the gift of the baby Jesus, born on Christmas, be an unopened present under your tree. You see what I'm saying? Don't just celebrate the sending of a gift that never gets opened, that never gets appropriated, that never gets used. Grandparents send gifts to be opened and enjoyed. And God sent his son to live and die in our place and to make us sons and daughters in his family. So kids, open your gifts this year and enjoy them. And remember, your grandparents might call and ask what you got on Christmas, right? Those who give good gifts like to know that they're being enjoyed. It's only right. Those who give good gifts want to know that they're being enjoyed. Now, we kind of always dreaded my grandma Doris calling up because we might find that something I thought was for me was actually for my sister and she got the tags wrong. So you're always like, and you, you were trying to figure out what she said. Sometimes you didn't even know what it was or why she said it. But it's not like that with God. You don't have to guess at why he sent this gift. It's a good gift. The actual, the gift actually teaches you something about your need. Even if you don't think you need this thing. You know, have you ever gotten a gift from somebody that you're like, really, do I need this? And this person who's wiser and has lived longer than you says, yeah, you really do. Trust me. A day is coming 
when you will need this gift, right? That's how it is with this gift. Don't let the gift of the baby Jesus be an unopened gift under your present, under your tree this year. The gift of Christmas, you see, just like your grandparents may call you one day, this gift of Christmas, the giver of this gift is going to ask you one day what you did with it. That's serious. One day, you are going to be asked by the giver of this gift, by God himself, what have you done with this gift? What have you done with this gift? Have you opened it? Or are you just happy that it, that it was sent? The gift of Christmas is a gift you'll be asked about one day. There is a day coming when we will have to answer to the one who made us for the gifts he has given. All gifts actually bring responsibility, you know. And, and it talks about that here in this passage, right? Paul says, God gave this gift. Therefore, quit worshiping other gods that shouldn't even be called gods. This gift actually should draw forth from us a response of worship and praise. And yet, as we stand here or sit here today, of course, we have to say to God, thank you for the gift. Forgive me for not really appropriating it fully. Help me to appreciate and treasure and be transformed by this gift that you have given. Help me to relish in the idea and the knowledge that I, by the grace of God alone, am a son and daughter of the living God. May that never be this kind of gift you're like, oh, okay, great. And you kind of cast it aside and then move on to the next thing, thinking that there's something better out there. There's nothing better out there. This is the greatest gift you will ever be given. What are we doing with this gift? Well, not what we should. But you know what? God is going to continually press upon us the goodness of this gift. He's not going to take it back. Every year we come again to remember this gift that God has given and to remember why he gave it. The gospel reveals the character of God. He didn't just send Jesus so that we could all be like, oh, that's awesome. As Paul tells us clearly here, he sent the gift so that we might become sons and daughters of God. And then the spirit was given that we might feel it and know it. It's the difference between knowing you're a child of God and really feeling it. One of my favorite illustrations, this old Puritan guy, I think it was Thomas Goodwin, tells this story. Imagine if you see um, a child walking down the street with their dad. And, and they're kind of holding him by the hand there, and they're walking down the street. And all of a sudden, the dad just kind of jerks that kid up and gives him a bear hug. Here's the thing. That child is no more a son or daughter in their daddy's arms than they are walking next to him. But here's what Goodwin says. But oh, for the difference in the experience. Jesus came so that we could not just be the friends of God, as glorious as that is, but could become the very sons and daughters of God. But the Spirit was sent that we would feel the bear hug. 
That's why he gave us this meal as well, right? Because meals in the Bible are always about rich fellowship, not just bare sustenance so that we can work some more. Like meals are to be celebrated. You're supposed to sit down and relish and enjoy one another's company. And that teaches us so much about the gift that's been given, doesn't it? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to celebrate this supper, this table that, again, speaks to us, preaches the gospel in a picture about what God is about and the gift that he's given. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your gift, and we thank you that you've explained it. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and seal in our hearts the reality of who you are and what you've come to do. Lord, I pray if there are those here who have not opened this gift, who've not come to faith in Jesus, why would they still stand apart from you? Lord, change their hearts, change all of our hearts to once again relish and enjoy this gift you've given. Forgive us for the ways we take it for granted so much of the time. Restore our sanity, even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.